0: Well, good morning, everyone. I'm very excited and thankful for the opportunity of the elders to be with you to preach the Word of God. Our theme this week will be zeal for God, and I look forward to being with the congregation because you have a very good reputation uh, that's really real encouraging for your good work and your stand for the truth, and I've also enjoyed my time with Brother Bob. He's an excellent Bible teacher in our time over in Uganda. I think uh, one of the uh, conditions of coming is I was not to relay any embarrassing stories about him, so I'll try to refrain myself if possible. Now, this is not an embarrassing story. This is actually a good story. You know, we, we were in uh, the Netherlands in Amsterdam in the concourse. We were walking down the concourse, and this uh, poor fellow in an Auburn T-shirt was walking down the concourse in Amsterdam, and Bob just was felt compelled to jump in front of him and say, Roll Tide, real loud. So, uh, he was being a low Alabama fan. Yeah, you thought I forgot that, but no. But uh, looking forward to... Uh, I know you're... Um, uh, y'all are very fortunate to have a good brethren here to work together in harmony and unity in the Lord's work. And uh, hopefully when we study about zeal for God, that we'll be intrigued by the uh, many different words that describe zeal in the New Testament. And And zeal is basically a byproduct of our faith, hope, and love. That is, if we see who God is, uh, we understand the Bible, we take on the character of God who is all love, and then we are focused on spiritual things and our hope of everlasting life, we ought to be zealous about that. We can't really, you can't understand that and be lukewarm. And the verse uh, of many in the New Testament that talk about our zeal and service to God In Titus chapter 2 and verse 14 says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And the word zeal in the New Testament basically has the idea of heat or passion or being on fire for the Lord. So when we think about just a working definition of zeal for God, it's passionate devotion to God. So I have to ask myself, am I passionately devoted to God? <clears throat> we're going to talk this morning about zeal for the cross of Christ. And I chose this subject because we're going to be taking the Lord's Supper in about an hour or so. But when we think about it, in the New Testament, zeal... There, the word, if it's about, I have an article that I'm going to print out and make available, but there's about 16 different words in the New Testament that are synonyms for zeal. It talks about we should be abounding in the work of the Lord, we should be rejoicing, we should be exulting. Uh, so there's, we should be diligent, and that's going to be hopefully an encouraging study for our personal spiritual growth this week. But when we think about our passionate devotion to God... One synonym for zeal is the word that Paul uses in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14, where it talks about glorying in the cross. I want you to look with me here in Galatians 6 14. We'll read, May it never be that I should boast, the King James says, glory, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this, Paul's not talking about boasting in a piece of wood, but he's talking about by metonymy the spiritual significance of what was accomplished at the cross. May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The word glorying or boasting, the the etymology of that word had to do with the neck being outstretched. And it's the idea of someone perking up or someone being uh, excited Or someone looking forward to something. So Paul is excited or is magnifying what the cross of Christ has meant to him. And this is a very profound confession that Paul makes. Because formerly, Paul as a Jew, and I I think he was a Jewish rabbi. He was a Christ hater and a Christian killer. And you have Christians locked up in jail. And that tells you the profound difference that the cross of Christ and the spiritual meaning thereof was a turning point in his spiritual life. That's a profound confession. I heard about a confession of a murderer uh, about ten years ago. A man named Brian Nichols uh, was convicted of rape in Atlanta, Georgia. And as he was being escorted out of the courtroom, he grabbed the pistol of the deputy, shot the deputy shot the judge, and shot the court reporter, killed three people. A deputy was sent to arrest him, and he killed that deputy. He killed four people. He kidnapped a a young woman outside of her apartment named Ashley Smith. He took her inside and tied her up, and he was hiding from the law. He noticed that she had been reading a book, and he asked her, what are these books you're reading? One was a Bible, and the other book was The Purpose Driven Life. And she was, on, he, she was on chapter 33 that talks about God made us for service. And as she was describing what was in that chapter, this murderer said, do you think God could use me? And she said, I think what you need to do is you need to go turn yourself in, confess to your crime and go to jail and tell people about God. And that's exactly what he did. That's a profound Confession of a murderer when he is confronted by the truth of God. Here you have a profound confession by a murderer, Paul, and here is another confession. This is to me. I had not noticed this until a few years ago. I was reading through the Gospel of Matthew, and and sometimes each gospel has a unique detail that is not in the other three gospels. This is unique to Matthew. At the end of Jesus's ordeal of his arrest, his suffering. and uh, and death on the cross, it says, Now the centurion, and here's the unique detail, and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. The others keeping watch over Jesus were the Roman guard or detail. They'd be the centurion and three other Roman soldiers who were pagan, calloused Roman soldiers who took charge of Jesus at about 6 a.m. or so, who witnessed the torture of Jesus, the mocking of Jesus, uh, the nailing of Jesus to the cross, and watching him hang there for six hours. These are the Roman soldiers that had mocked him as well as everyone else. And at the end of this ordeal, these Roman soldiers said, truly, this is the Son of God. This is unique to Matthew because Matthew was written to Jews. Matthew is written to tell the Jews, this is the Christ who fulfills Old Testament prophecy. And the point here is if four Roman pagan soldiers can see this is the Son of God, why can't you see this is the Son of God? That's the confession of the four murderers. These were the soldiers of the governor, Matthew 27, 27. These were Jesus' execution squad that had him in custody from around 6 a.m. to around 3 p.m. Jesus said in John chapter 12 and verse 32 And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to myself. What is the drawing power of the gospel? Is it food, fun, and frolic? Is it having some kind of entertainment? Having country music singers and barbecue and things like that and draw people, really use it as bait to get them to come and then to try to switch in the gospel that you don't have a lot of confidence in. What did they do in the New Testament? They preached Jesus Christ and Him crucified and Jesus Christ and Him glorified. Because this is the power to convert the human heart. In the cross of Christ, we see the amazing grace of God. We see the wonderful love of God in Jesus Christ. And we also see the heinousness of our sins. That our sins must be horrible, but God's grace must be wonderful beyond all telling. And so the central point that we'll be talking about this morning is that seeing the redemptive power of the cross motivates zeal for Jesus Christ. That, hopefully, that we will want to only glory in the cross of Christ and be crucified or dead to the world and alive only to Jesus Christ. We're going to look at what did they see that moved them to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And second point, we'll talk about what does that mean to us today. We read here in John chapter 18, verse 31 and 32... So Pilate said to them, take him yourselves, this is the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death, to fulfill the word of Jesus which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. I find that an interesting statement, they weren't permitted to put anybody to death because that did not stop them from stoning Stephen, Acts chapter 7. What this shows is that the death of Jesus was not an accident of history. And Jesus was not a victim. But everything that happened was carried out by the precise plan of Almighty God that was planned from eternity. Uh, The the Jews killed people, uh, capital punishment was by stoning. The Old Testament said that he would be pierced through for our transgression, referring to Roman crucifixion. And Jesus himself had predicted the manner by which he would die when he said he would be lifted up on a Roman cross. In Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan of God and nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men. And when we read the death of Christ, we are seeing the, the amazing providence and power of God that God is so powerful and God is so sovereign that he can take the free will choices of evil men and use them to accomplish his purpose. That's important for us to remember because we live in a world that sometimes we fret, we worry, we think the world's just going, is just, just totally out of control, and sometimes people wonder where is God? And we say that in spite of man's sin and man's rebellion, God is still in charge of the course of history. Then we see, as we survey the events surrounding the death of Jesus, Matthew chapter 27 and verse 26, that he, Pilate, released Barabbas for them, but after having Jesus' scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Here we have Jesus was given up in the place of Barabbas. Barabbas was condemned. He was a criminal. He was a murderer. Barabbas, did you know that we are Barabbas? That word Barabbas literally means son of a man, like our John Doe. B-A-R means son of, like Simon Bar-Jonah means son, Simon son of Jonah. Abba, Abbas means father. So here you have son of a father, which means like our John Doe. This could be, any, it's a nondescript way to describe a man. And that could be any of us. Jesus, we, we were guilty, and Jesus was delivered in our place to, to, to pay our price and to die our death. And then they were taken then Jesus was taken out to be scourged, which was predicted by Isaiah chapter 53 that he was going to be wounded or scourged for our transgressions. The idea of scourging, was uh, such a cruel form of punishment that men died from scourging. You would have two Roman lictors that would take a a cat, what's called a cat of nine tails. It was a, a wooden handle with long leather straps on the end that had embedded metal and bone and glass that in alternating... Uh, blows across the bare back of Jesus, when it was pulled across, the back would slice open the back and the victim would begin to uh, bleed profusely. Jesus is being punished as a propitiation for our sins, that the wrath of God is being poured out on Jesus. And then the four soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium, which was the headquarters of the the Roman guard, and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. A Roman cohort was around 300 to 600 Soldiers, these men gathered around Jesus to mock him, to ridicule him. He who could destroy them with a word remained silent. He who was their only hope, they despised. I had the opportunity, to, the first time I went to Africa was in the year 2000. I I've made about four trips to Ethiopia thereafter. And when I went to Ethiopia, the uh, hotel where we stayed was dedicated to the memory of Holly Selassie, who was the king of Ethiopia for, I think it was over 40 years. When the communists took over Ethiopia in the 1970s, um, to show their utter contempt for him as the ruler of Ethiopia, when he died, they had him buried in a public latrine to show their utter contempt for him. Here these men are showing their utter contempt, and yet Jesus loves them, and he died for them, and he suffered for them as well as for us. And we have such a Savior who is willing to exercise self-restraint in the face of severe provocation to accomplish God's purpose on the cross. So why this horrible suffering? You know, we talk about Jesus as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The Passover lamb in the Old Testament was not tortured. None of the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament were tortured. They were simply killed as a substitute for the guilty who offered it. Why this horrible suffering that Jesus had to suffer and be tortured to atone for our sins? Well, the Bible tells us that God, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Romans chapter 8 and verse 3. First Peter 2 says, He bore our sins in His body. Which the idea of Jesus being punished for our sins is part of the biblical doctrine of propitiation, an atoning sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God. And what God is showing us in the suffering of Christ, is God's hatred of sin. It is a visible picture for us to understand how serious our sins are. This is important because in our society, people make light of sin. They make jokes about sin. They make TV sitcoms about sin, such as fornication. People joke about getting drunk. And all these different things are as funny as Christ, on the cross. Uh, when we look when we take the Lord's Supper, and there's two elements of the Lord's Supper. There's the bread that represents his body, and there's the fruit of the vine that represents his blood. The idea of the blood being shed is the life given as a substitute for redemption. But the body suffering shows that Jesus is our propitiation, that he was punished and he suffered in our place to appease the just. Anger of God against our sin. But also, this shows the amazing love of God. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God watched his beloved son die. He could at any time intervene and stop it. But he didn't. You know why? Because he loves you. And he loves me. Imagine seeing one of your children being beaten up and tortured by a bunch of thugs and you have to watch them die. If you had the power to intervene, any parent would want to intervene to stop the suffering of their child. God watched his son die because he wants us to go to heaven. He wants to offer us the gospel plan of salvation. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 31. And after they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments on him and led him away to crucify him. Hebrews chapter 13 says, He suffered outside of the gate, which is a reference to, in Leviticus 16, the day of atonement, the the animal sacrifice, like the bull, after the part of the, uh, uh, they would cut out the portions that were offered. The carcass and the refuse were burned outside of the camp as an unclean thing. Jesus in Judaism suffered as an unclean thing. And the Bible tells us to let us go out to Him. Let us go out to Him and not be ashamed of our Christ who suffered. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 32. As they... And uh, Mark in red, they, referring to the execution squad, the four soldiers the, that confessed Jesus as the Son of God, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon. Cyrene was a city in North Africa in modern-day Libya. This man had come a long, long way to Jerusalem to worship. And being compelled to carry the the cross of Christ, which was an instrument of death, he would be considered by the Jews to be unclean. He wouldn't be able to partake of the Passover. They found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross, and when they came to a place called Golgotha. Jesus, who was deprived of sleep during the night before, was tortured, was scourged, which you would have an enormous loss of fluid and blood, had to carry the cross beam of the cross, which weighed over a hundred pounds, which would be a, 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 an oppressive burden to bear. And I'm glad there was someone named Simon who was there to help Jesus to bear his cross. And Jesus asked us to deny ourselves and to take up our cross. And to follow him, Jesus is counting on us, wherever we live, wherever we are, to take up our cross for Jesus' sake. And to die to self, so that the plan of salvation can advance. When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. Uh, we're not exactly sure where the Golgotha or Calvary is, but uh, I had an opportunity in 2008 to go to Israel. And we went to this site, it's called Gordon's Calvary, uh, outside of Jerusalem. It's called the Place of the Skull because in this outcropping of rock, there it looks like a skull. Now, if you go there now, just recently, I think it was in the last year or so, uh, erosion, uh, the nose of the skull has is, uh, has fallen off. And so it's not... Does't look like a skull anymore. Uh, the tour guide said that uh, this was a place that the tradition had, that the Jews executed people. They would push people off the top of the cliff, and then after they fell to the bottom, they would stone them, which would you know make it easier for them or easier to kill. But then the Romans continued the practice of crucifying people because it was an elevated place. Crucifixion was meant as public shame, as a warning to anybody not to mess. With Rome. Here was the only act of compassion that Jesus had offered to him. He was offered a painkiller. And you notice that Jesus refused it. Because Jesus was to drink the cup of the wrath of God to its final dregs in our place. This shows the, the courage and the bravery of Jesus Christ not to shun, not to shirk his duty in dying for us. Luke chapter 23, verse 27. And following him was a large crowd of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. Jesus is referring to the judgment that was going to come on Jerusalem in 70 A.D., Because of the Jews' rejection of him. Imagine the great, imagine all that Jesus had to suffer, bearing the weight of the sins of the world, the physical pain and suffering and shame and disgrace that he was undergoing. Instead of being all wrapped up in himself, we have such a Savior who is perfectly empathetic and compassionate. And he saw these women weeping. Instead of being overly burdened, well, I've got enough on my mind, his heart goes out to them. A word of comfort. And I think for a Christian that that ought to encourage us to think about what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25, that he ever lives to make intercession for us. We have such a Savior at the right hand of God who knows what it's like to be a human being, and our name is spoken in heaven. He, the Bible says in Romans eight thirty four seven Hebrews seven twenty five, He intercedes for us. We have a merciful, compassionate high priest in Jesus Christ. And when, and when they had crucified Him, they divided up His garments among themselves by casting lots, and sitting down, they began to watch over him there. This is a picture depicting Roman crucifixion. Um, Cicero, who is a Roman uh, statesman, who defended a Roman senator who was being charged with treason and tried to help him to avoid being crucified, he called crucifixion the most cruel and abominable form of punishment. He called it the extreme penalty. It was the slave's death. Josephus, the Jewish historian, called it the most wretched of all ways of dying. When the Romans took over Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and the ones that were not killed, the the, the men who survived, that weren't sold into slavery, they crucified them lining the streets of Jerusalem until they ran out of wood and crosses. And it's called the, the most cruel and abominable forms of punishment because it was not designed merely to kill someone. But it was meant to prolong the pain as long as possible. So they would be a public warning that this is what you do if you rebel against the authority of Rome. The word uh, excruciating comes from the Latin word crux, which is the word for cross. And the word excruciating means from out of the cross. This picture here on the left is the only physical extant evidence we have of crucifixion from antiquity. This is the heel bone of a young man that was discovered in Jerusalem in 1968 with the seven-inch nail still through his heel bone. And the picture to the right is an a, uh, illustration of how that the nail went in the side of the foot and had a piece of wood to, to hold the foot against the, the cross. Cicero said, let not only the cross be far from a Roman, Roman citizen's body, but also his eyes and his thoughts and his ears, because it was an obscenity. Worst possible death. The picture on the right is some graffiti from 2nd century Rome. It says, Alexander Minos worshipped his God. It's a picture of man lifted up on a cross, and he has the head of a donkey. And some man who is the butt of a joke says that he is worshiping his God. The Greeks thought that this was foolishness. The Jews saw this was a stumbling block. The Gentiles would say, and the Romans would say, You want me to believe in a Savior who could not save himself from the indignity of death? We believe Jesus could not save us by saving himself. And that's what the Bible says that he... He gave himself as a redemption, a sacrifice to pay the penalty of justice in our place. The Romans perfected crucifixion as a form of torture and capital punishment. It was designed to produce slow death, maximum pain, and humiliation. That's a quote from the Journal of the American Medical Association back in 1986. Because it was basically death by asphyxiation. When a person was hanging upright on a cross, you think about how painful that is to have these seven-inch Roman spikes driven through your flesh and you're hanging from those spikes. Just imagine somebody nails you against that wall we're just going to leave you there for about six hours or so until you die. Um, The idea of the pain was so excruciating if all the weight was on the, the foot or the heel that a person would lift themselves up by the arms to, to to alleviate some of the pain, the excruciating pain on the heel. And in doing so, the, the intercostal muscles or the chest muscles would become paralyzed. There would be these uh, re- gut-wrenching cramps so that a person could breathe in, but they couldn't expel the air, and they'd eventually suffocate. But imagine those iron spikes go through his flesh, but the Bible says not one bone would be broken, which is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, that Jesus, despite his suffering, was doing the work of God, and he was being protected by God. And when we go through the very worst situation, we need to realize we're not abandoned by God. Matthew 27, verse 37. Above his head, they put up a charge against him, which read, "This is Jesus, the King of the Jews." And at that time, two robbers were crucified with him—one on the right and one on the left. And this is an amazing fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that he be numbered with the transgressors from the book of Isaiah, chapter fifty-three. If Jesus had been had died alone, or if Jesus had just been had just been crucified with one. Criminal, that would have been a failed prophecy. But God would foresee, prophecy is history written in advance, that he would be numbered with the transgressors. Matthew 27, verse 39, "...and those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads, saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross." The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. It wasn't nails that held Jesus to the cross, but it was love. Jesus says, Greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And as I mentioned before, Jesus could not have saved us if he had saved himself. We believe in him, not because he had the power to come down, but he had the power to stay. Matthew 27, verse 45, And from the sixth hour darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is interesting, there was a Samaritan historian... Uh, named Thallus, and he mentioned in 52 AD that there was, he mentioned this darkness all over the land that at this time that he attributed to an eclipse, which made no sense because during the Passover, this would be the time of the full moon, and the moon would be on the wrong side of the earth. It, It was on the far side of the earth and not the near side of the earth to produce an eclipse. And this is quoted for us in 250 or so by Julius Africanus that preserved that there was historical record of this, um, from secular sources, of this universal darkness over the land. And here Jesus, I believe, is suffering the penalty we deserve, which is separation from God. Matthew 27, verse 15, "...and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake... And the things that were happening became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. What they saw for about nine hours totally changed their perspective about Jesus. Now what does that mean to us? What difference is that going to make to us? What persuaded them to change their minds from being mockers of Jesus to confess Christ Luke 23, verse 47, so when the centurion saw what had happened, he praised God saying, certainly this was a righteous man. Jesus suffered extreme indignity and pain on the cross, but he never lost his cool. What the cross shows us is that pain and suffering can be overcome by trusting in God. I remember years ago, I was in a business meeting and a fellow got upset and he lost his temper and he bit somebody's head off. And then uh, the next business meeting, he had to he apologized to everybody and he said, I was having a bad day. Well, what happens is, is what's on the inside comes out under pressure. And when Jesus had these bad circumstances pressuring him, you didn't see Jesus cursing them. Or reviling them. What did they see? They saw his self-control. First Peter chapter 2 verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled he did not revile in return. While suffering he uttered no threats. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus didn't overlook their sin as if it didn't matter. He entrusted final judgment to God. But he was going to control himself. Sometimes we get upset if somebody gets away with something. Oh, they're getting away with something. You know, nobody gets away with anything as far as God is concerned. There's going to be a final accounting where all, where justice will be done. So seeing the redemptive suffering of Christ motivates zeal. I believe, to confess Christ. They also felt God's miraculous confirmation. Matthew 27, verse 45, Now from the sixth hour darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. Now the centurion and those who are with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, this miraculous confirmation became very frightened and said, Truly this was the Son of God. We need to remember that divine revelation is always accompanied by miraculous confirmation. God doesn't want us to believe based on no evidence. He wants us to believe based on reasonable evidence. You know, darkness and earthquakes were associated with God's judgment in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Bible says that faith is the evidence of things not seen God gives reasonable evidence, and, and I have another lesson, you know, three, I, I, I'll show you three miracles. Uh, one is the origin of the universe. Something doesn't come from nothing. The origin of the universe is a miracle. The origin of life is a miracle. Uh, life always produces life. No example of non-life producing life. That's the law of biogenesis. Three miracles. Third, fulfill prophecy. History written in advance. Read in the Old Testament, Isaiah is written 700 years before Jesus lived. You have all these detailed prophecies. That's a verifiable miracle. We conceive it with our very eyes. So God doesn't give overwhelming evidence to try to make somebody believe, but he gives sufficient evidence to believe. So seeing the redemptive power of the cross motivates zeal to believe in the crucified Christ. What do these Four murderers of Jesus. What did they hear? They heard the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. Uh, when a person is at the end of their life, what they say is very profound because it often sums up what their life is all about. They heard um, uh, Mark fifteen thirty nine. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this was the Son of God. The way he breathed his last, the other account said, he said... It is finished. Into your hands I commend my spirit. They heard the word of forgiveness Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus had mercy toward his murderers. Is there anybody that, uh, if you saw them or met them because of some injustice they did to you in the past, you'd kind of get knots in your stomach? Or is there anybody that? you hold a grudge against. Someone said, you know, holding a grudge is like taking poison and hoping it will kill the other person. Jesus, by His example, said, Father, forgive them. Jesus had a merciful attitude. They were held accountable for their deeds, but Jesus had a merciful attitude toward the person. Jesus, all they heard, Jesus said, truly, today you shall be with me in paradise. This is the word of grace to the penitent thief, which he died under the Old Testament dispensation before Jesus rose from the dead. So Jesus had the authority to dispense or grant forgiveness on earth. But the point really there is that the penitent thief is grace. It takes just as much grace to save the the penitent thief on the cross or any other sinner like the Apostle Paul as it does us. Thank God for His grace. They heard the word of obedience. He said, Behold your mother. Jesus is about to die. He was the oldest. We don't see or hear about Joseph. The Old Testament law said, Honor your father and your mother. Jesus is dying in perfect obedience to the law. That's why He is the perfect sacrifice. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the cry of... uh, God forsaken us. The penalty of sin is separation from God. I believe Jesus is paying the penalty here in a judicial sense. So that He he died our death and He who owed a debt, uh, He paid a debt He didn't owe. For those who owed a debt, they could not pay. He said, I thirst. This is the word of human suffering. He died physically on the cross. It is finished. This is a word of accomplishment. Jesus persevered, and he didn't quit. And, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. This is the word of trust. At the end of suffering, he wasn't bitter. He trusted God would be waiting for him on the other side. Great lessons there. Understand the redemptive power of Christ's cross motivates zeal for Christ. And Jesus said, and when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And so, will the cross of Christ move you to confess him as your Savior and divine Lord? Jesus said, if you confess me before men, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 and 33, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my fathers in heaven, but if you deny me before men, I will deny you. We have an opportunity to confess Jesus every day. Confess means to say the same thing. We are to live for Christ. By our life and by our lips, we confess that Jesus Christ has changed my life for the better. Jesus wasn't ashamed of me. He wasn't ashamed to die for me and for you. Jesus is counting on us to take up our cross, to die to self, to live for him. Just as he showed us that in God's plan, God... That Jesus humbled himself even to the point of death, the death of the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him. So in the end, with Christ, we will always win. I hope that we will think about being zealous for the cross of Christ. To not be ashamed to talk to people about Jesus Christ can change your life for the better, just like he's changed mine. So I look forward to being with you this week as we talk about zeal for the cross of Christ and a zeal for God. And uh, the next verse we'll just read as we, can, we conclude. The cross of Christ demonstrates His triumphant conquest of sin and death. Revelation 1, 17, When I saw Him, I fell at His feet like a dead man, and He placed His right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last and the living One. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. The death of Christ was not some great tragedy. It is part of God's plan of defeating sin and death. And in Christ, we can be everlasting victors. So Jesus died, but he didn't stay dead. And that's the good news of the gospel. So I look forward to my time with you this week, and thank you for your very good attention.